This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this uh, Lawrence the One Chair Conference uh, on Multitude and Insurrection, Aquinas after Spinoza. Uh, it's going to be a two-tier, two-part conference, one on the idea of multitude and the other one on the idea of insurrection, again, in Aquinas. Uh, I got the, the idea for this uh, conference tonight because I have a three-year summer seminar on re revolution, insurrections, upheavals from the Greeks up to today. And I thought, well, let's see what Aquinas does. The other I, reason why I thought of giving this conference is that some of you might recall that in January uh, earlier this year uh, on CNN and Fox and other uh, networks, our neighbors to the South were talking about insurrection because something was happening on the Capitol Hill in Washington. So multitude and insurrection. Why multitude? Well, because it's becoming fashionable again, but let's try and translate multitude. Very complex debate. Uh, recently, uh, an Italian wrote a long article trying to justify and sort out how to translate that. Uh, it's been translated by crowd, by people, by multitude, by masses, depending on the time, uh, if you were English or French or Italian, if you had read Gramsci or you hadn't. Uh, so tonight I decided to translate multitude, multitudo in Latin, by multitude. Basically, multitude has become recently, and I'll get to that a bit later, uh, the new buzzword to that I put in a class of other words like classes, crowds, groups, masses, mob, people, population, all modern categories uh, that have been brought to get brought uh, in to try and find organic uh, con connections between individuals once the so-called original or natural or uh, ancient uh, sociable sociability disappeared. So multitude is the latest born and there so say many uh, and we'll uh, have to uh, pay attention to who says that and why a bit later. Now, when we talk multitude and insurrection, what are we focusing on? In multitude, that is. Well, there's four possible ways of looking at it. The first one, and I'm playing with the Latin here. The first one, of course, multitudes could have to do with numbers. There's many, They're, they multiply, you know, you know there, there are a lot of people that got, get together. That's one way of looking at multitude. If you think in terms of crowd as translation, a crowd has nothing to do with numbers. Uh, if you go to uh, the etymology of crowd and you find the same thing in the old Latin for some of the verbs and nouns we're gonna use later, the idea is pressure. Is there's a presence of people who exercise pressure on one another and uh, that's what a crowd is and that's what the multitude could be. You can also pay attention to the same social thing in front of you, call it a multitude, but think in terms of disorderly movements. It's going in all sorts of direction from within and you never know where it's gonna turn and when it's gonna turn. And of course, 
uh, as we will see with Aquinas. The idea of multitude will also be linked, especially at the political level, to the idea of noise. Put a bunch of people together and that makes noise. And if you're a good bourgeois or you're a Roman senator, you don't like noise. You don't like the pressure that builds up when people fill the streets and the forey. Uh, you don't like that. You don't like when a num large number of people go together. No, you don't like that. Okay, so we'll have to see which of these is interesting for us. But remember, it is multitude, class, crowd, uh, and all those words for me are in our normal understanding, modern understanding, they're trying to talk about sociability. Now, at the beginning of this talk, I want to present two different types of reaction in, term, in relation to multitudes or to insurrections linked to these multitudes. The first one, I must thank Vincent, who's with us tonight because it's his fault. Uh, we do introduction to philosophy together and he's redirected me to a paper I had read years ago by a certain Mr. Hamilton in the pile of Federalist papers that he has. It's the introduction to the uh, Federalist paper number nine for those of you who are interested. Now Hamilton is horrified as you will see when he hears about multitudes arising, insurrecting. Here it goes. A firm union will be of the utmost moment to the peace and liberty of the states as a barrier against domestic faction and insurrections. It is possible to read the history of the petty republics, sorry, it is impossible to read the history of the petty republics of Greece and Italy without feeling sensations of horror and disgust at the distractions with which they were continually agitated and at the rapid succession of revolutions by which they were kept in a state of a perpetual vibration between the extremes of tyranny and anarchy. You've got to love uh, old American rhetoric, okay? Why is he so disgusted? Because he's a good modern. And good moderns, they're funnily good Romans, they want foundations. They want something that's grounded, structured, and that will last. And they find the Greek political experience totally, utterly horrendous. We need to go away from that. And multitudes bring that about, especially when they start moving towards a capital or other places. I suggest for the remission of your sins, you read the rest of these, this first paragraph because multitude is equated with uh, tempestuous waves of sedition and party rage. Okay, so you don't want multitudes and you do not want insurrections. We want law and order. So multitude insurrection equals horror. Now, there's another author recently, uh, Negri, uh, who wrote a whole book called Multitude. And the whole book he writes uh, has to do with war and democracy and these type of things. He celebrates multitudes. Let me read the beginning of his book, one of the, uh, the sections. Political action aimed at transformation and liberation today can only be conducted on the basis of multitudes. 
and he'll describe multitude and we'll get back to that later. But the interesting thing is that as he thinks through, he enlists Madison and the Federalist Papers as having understood this, the importance of the movement of the multitude, of its upheavals as part and parcel of what requires to be part and parcel of what a good uh, republic is. And I, let me read uh, uh, Negri on Madison. The content of Madison's constitutionalism, which has since been called democratic, was but really liberal. It can be described and often has been as a mode of maintaining an equilibrium of social classes whereby an equilibrium of social classes, one assumes the command of the stronger over the weaker. That said, we should never forget that Madison thought, Madison's thought is completely permeated by Republican utopianism. The same utopianism that we find today in the popular revolts and insurrectionists of the global poor. Madison's project was to discover an institutional form that could realize this utopian desire to the extent that the real condition of his day would allow. So you may decide if you're Hamiltonian or Madisonian in terms of multitudes and uh, or of the uh, problems linked to uh, the way of understanding insurrection. Okay, so I wanted to cast that first very, very political aspect before plunging into where and why we're talking about multitudes today. Negri in his book, uh, which received major criticism, uh, first and foremost, focused on Spinoza, not the Spinoza of the ethics, nor the Spinoza of the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, but the Spinoza of the political treatise, which he left unfinished uh, at his death. And in that book comes up the idea of multitude influenced by Machiavelli, uh, which Spinoza had read in between. Now, what is interesting, and this is why I'm giving this talk in the Dewan chair, it's because most modern political philosopher or people in political sciences will say, well, the idea of multitude as something different than the people or just the masses or the crowds or things like that is a modern thing. In the old days, before that, we never thought in, in those terms. And basically, I went back to Aquinas to see that, uh, well, Spinoza could have read Aquinas and have had a sense of multitudes and Negri could have uh, read about it too. And when we look at his definition of uh, multitude at the end, we'll see that it could have ended up being much more fun and less problematic had he read Aquinas. Of course, I'm biased, you know. So, so let's suspend for a few minutes this political idea of multitude and let's do a bit of metaphysics. I promise I won't be long. Uh, why, and Walter knows that, it's because I don't know anything about metaphysics. So I just kind of throw it in and I'll put it out and uh, the metaphysicians in you won't have to be afraid of my saying horrendous things. Uh, in the final of the Sophists of Plato, you know that he's been tracking in that dialogue, the uh, Sophists 
trying to nail them down and imprison them and show them they're wrong. The last trick Plato invents is metaphysics, but a strange metaphysics, the metaphysics of the uh, uh, couples uh, in terms of uh, the one, the many, the being and non-being and these type of things. So starting there, all the way down to the very, well, recent, not so much anymore, but Paul Ricoeur's Ricoeur oneself as another. In his last uh, study of that book, study number 10, he promised, and he died before delivering his promise. He, he said, after all of what I've been talking about, the same and the different and the one and the many, in terms of personal identity, we should go back with Levinas to Plato's sophist and the one and the many. So from Plato to Ricoeur, the one and the many as a couple has been at the heart of uh, Western metaphysics. And it got a special twist uh, in the first centuries of our current era when the Neoplatonists, you know how much I love them, uh, and the theologians, be they Jewish, Muslim, or uh, Christian, reinforced this idea of the one and the many, the one now becoming and being God. Okay. And here are the, some of the fundamental ways metaphysically they go about this. Multitude or the multiple, the many, can and must be reduced to unity because it proceeds from it, okay? There's always an order and orientation towards unity that structures, organizes, uh, in, uh, and reduces multiplicity, okay? So you're, there's the one, and you either participate uh, by representing or refracting the unity in the multiplicity, okay? Uh, and anything that becomes multiple, many, is seen as a loss, okay? Or to put it differently, multitude insofar as it's oriented towards unity, whatever the level it's on, is lived as something euphoric, something good that brings about joy. And as soon as you talk about disintegration of unity towards the multiplicity, there is bound to be some sadness. Okay. So the question is, the metaphysical discourse on multiplicity and the one, what type of impact does it have on the constitution of the multitudes politically? In Aquinas, that is. Okay. And uh, it's very interesting when you read secondary literature and when you read modern commentators of Aquinas from John of St. Thomas onwards, the metaphysical framework invests everything. And of course, it's all about unity and this going towards unity will politically be seen as the unity of the people at some point or the unity of the power uh, and things like that. I want to show that for Aquinas, it's not so clear that we need to read the political and social multitude uh, in such a uh, metaphysical perspective. I will emphasize, of course, then the 
complexity, the diversity, and the movement, and what can happen within the, the multitude. Insurrection uh, will be one of those things that can happen near the end of the talk, but I'm interested in a very unstable, in a way, multitude, much more than a metaphysical unity or process of unification. Now, if you open Aquinas's uh, corpus, you'll see that he uses multitudo to designate the people. Multitudo populi in many places. Uh, oftentimes in his commentaries on Isaiah and Jeremiah, because they're political prophets in many ways, so they talk about the people. But it's also multitude designates the city or the regime. Uh, and you can have different types of regimes uh, and you can have regiminis multitudinis. You can have the regime of the multitude like you could have the regime, a regime which would be more uh, aristocratic. Now, when he's talking about regiminis multitudinis, he's thinking in terms of Greek. So it's the multitude of the demos. It's not the people of Canada and it's definitely not the people of the state. It's a demos. So it is a very, very definite part of the population general, okay, uh, that he's designating. So it's not the whole uh, of the population of the city. So it's not the people, uh, but we'll get more about that later. So he also uses the idea of multitudo to speak of particular types of units or unities, the military one, the economical one linked to the family, and the, these two that get put together and that form another type of multitude. Because you have on the, in the families, you've got soldiers, soldiers have their army and they, they've got their type of gathering and the family still has its own thing. Okay. You uh, have that, for example, uh, talking about unity uh, but in the tertia parts in question eight ad secundum. Now we would be tempted to see this as, and again, commentators, uh, they're a good thing, they're a pain. Read Malbranche on commentators, you will never want to read them again. So they talk about, there must be some type of organic unity there. Uh, and Aquinas uses the, the organic metaphor. Uh, but very quickly, by the way he describes it, we see that this type of metaphor is way insufficient uh, because they, they're in a way very dynamic, uh, very structural. Okay, this goes into this under this and gets united here, but they're not dynamic, dynamic. Because the organic metaphor is linked to the family or to the army or to the regimes multitudino, uh, multitudinous, uh, they forget that they're composed of human beings. Human beings that desire, that want, that choose, that are pushed, shoved. Uh, and they forget the tumults, the social turbulences that oftentimes uh, are present in multitudes. Okay. You, you get the idea that because it's organic, it all falls nicely into one as if you never had gas or trouble digesting, okay? 
or to put it bluntly, they have a very, very asepticized idea of what organicity is. They forget how much uh, it can be problematic. So Aquinas leaves oftentimes these ideas of organicity and he brings the idea of college, collegium, okay? Which is not just a collection or a grouping, okay? It's not just a bring together or a, a bunch of people, but it's a voluntary association in which you recognize the other as existing in a very close relationship with you and there's always this idea of justice behind it. Uh, and this is often not seen uh, in the commentators. And uh, I think it's, it leads to a more conservative reading of Aquinas if you forget that. Uh, but the idea of collegium is at the heart of uh, things for him. Uh, and that is, again, voluntary association. It's not contractualism like moderns, no, no, no. But I recognize that I have a relationship with you and uh, okay, I rec recognizing that I still want to get in there with you, but we'll still have to decide to de deliberate and choose. And as you know, we will not be in agreement, uh, neither of opinion, nor of emotions, nor of choice of actions, okay? Full, inner peace and concord are not for today or tomorrow, even in the best possible world, let's call that the United States, for, because I have an American beside me, uh, I've got to be nice. Uh, but the idea is, no, in a college, I live in one, I presided over one. The organicity involved a lot of gas and a lot of different types of other problems. So we're at the beginning of our thing, but it's uh, Aquinas has these things. So the, I'll give you the references if you're interested on the collegium thing. De Malo question four, article one. De Veritate question seven, article one. And there's also some of that in Prima Secunde, Prima Pars question 39, article three, uh, where Aquinas will use collegium for the army and other groupings which in at other moments he uses the word multitudes for, okay? So let's be attentive to his way of thinking and let's not try to go too quickly. So when you say multitude, you say diversity, okay? And there's kind of two levels in Aquinas on that. There's the level of creation as such, and there's a level of the uh, political multitudes and how we all fit together. Creation required a multiplicity of types of creatures. It required that there be contraries. And if there are contraries, that means there will be uh, some sort of tension. There won't be unity. Uh, uh, and the idea, the, the image Aquinas is used, especially in Contra Gentiles 371, is you'll find in creation the just people that have to be patient because there are persecutors that are really working hard to make you earn your uh, heaven, okay? So you see, and I insist uh, I chose that quote because again, it's a question not so much of just 
I am there beside you because I was born from you or uh, I'm in the same army in the same cohort or whatever. No, the just and the persecutors are individuals who have made ethical choices, who have made political choices. They have chosen means of being with one another. Uh, maybe not the good ones, okay? And this diversity with these contraries and all that can go together and be together because there is an organization, an orientation that is rooted in God's unique and wise providence, okay? That extends both to natural things and those that have um, their proper will. But the idea that all the creatures are good in them themselves, if you want, uh, and the idea of that being all oriented by his unique wise providence, that's very nice for creation and from the theological perspective. But however well Hamilton and others want our governments and forms of governments and regimes to be working well and be united, I've never seen, but I'm still young and I haven't looked everywhere and all uh, centuries, but I've never seen a unique wise providence being able to impose an orientation in an efficient way to a multitude in politics. The only time you have that, and we'll have to come back to that because it will lead to insurrection, is when you have tyranny. And that's when for Aquinas, the multitude can rise <laughs> and can create an upheaval. Uh, so it's fun. When we come to uh, the political multitude, it's very improbable that the wills of everyone and of each one will orchestrate and organize as a well-oriented understanding of good because all are not looking for the same thing, be in terms of honor, recognition, or money. Because you, in any political group, not everyone is starting from the same place. Uh, I suggest you go read uh, Contra Gentiles 3, 135, you'll have that, and it comes in 136 again. It's a recurring theme in Aquinas. If you move beyond, there are human beings all oriented towards their happiness in a concrete political social situation. Not everyone has the same understanding. Not everyone has the same needs. Not everyone has the same capacity to satisfy the needs, uh, even the most basic ones. Okay, not even bringing in yet the fact that because of the diversity of forms of life, like I'm a religious, some are married, some others are not, some live in uh, other types of groupings or aggregates that have their own inner logic, not everyone will be thinking in the same way. You need to get people to collaborate together, okay? to produce laws towards the common good so that there can be peace. But this can only happen, even the best of regimes, by a discussion where there'll be diversity of views, irreducibility of opinions, because we are not talking about truth and false, or about the good in itself, we're talking about possible paths towards 
the end and the peace. And there are always, depending on where you are and where you, uh, how you see things, you will not be able to see peace in the same way. Go back to Aristotle's rhetoric book two. If you're young, beautiful, rich, and uh, in good health, and you're, uh, all your life you've had chance, you will not be able to see and think and argue and understand the old cynic, desperate, impoverished, unhealthy, old, grumpy man. I'm quoting Aristotle here, uh, revising the Greek. So the idea that we're looking for the common good, again, commentators have this idea that it's a clear thing, you just have to think it properly and it's all gonna be there. I don't know where they got that. Uh, definitely not from Aquinas. But the idea for Aquinas is that all of that will require lots of discussion uh, and lots of actions, okay? So the question becomes when we can ask ourselves, with all these diversity already, can we kind of understand how things would go? Well, Aquinas offers a model at one point uh, in Prima Pars, question 11, article two, ad secundum. He says there are kind of two types of multitudes. The one composed of homogeneous parts, like a basket of apples, and the other composed of heterogeneous parts, like the parts of a house. Now, if I ask you, what type of multitude would you figure a political multitude is? Well, one could be interested in saying, well, it's a bunch of apples. After all, it's all human beings, and it's all human beings created by God and God's image, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or if you don't want theology, they're all human beings born and bred here together, uh, they're citizens of the same country. So a Quebecois is a Quebecois is a Quebecois. Uh, and then you have a French who's a French who's a French. Uh, and you can lump them together in that. Is that a political multitude? Well, again, com some commentators have wanted that. And some of the ideas under republicanism is are linked to that way of seeing things. The other part, the idea that we are different, like the different parts of a house. I would say from God's perspective, that probably is the case. I'll be nice. Summa Contra Gentiles 3, Gordon Thompson suffered through a whole seminar with me for 45 hours on God's providence and the commentary on uh, Summa Contra Gentiles 3, he knows. But from the existential, sociological, or even journalistic perspective of what you see in a multitude, well, what type of a house you're gonna end up building with that, it's not clear. And there'll be all sorts of people who will want all sorts of different types of uh, organization, okay? If you're a shoemaker, a soldier, a poet, if you're rich, if you're the, the, the one that bakes the bread, your needs to do the good thing you want to be doing for the whole require all sorts of things that the shoemaker will not think necessarily of what the bread maker requires or needs to do, okay? And again, that will require lots of discussion 
so as to make this work, okay? And it will always be temporary, okay? There's a great sense in Aquinas when you look at his readings and his commentaries on the prophets especially, that he's okay with there'll be changes of regimes and there'll be changes of king. Again, Pace Hamilton. Uh, now, this group, however diversified and however much debates there is, there are basic things that unite them, okay? And they can get to be, they can be brought or bring themselves eventually, sometimes, to think it together and be more or less united. But everyone is an, is an agent there and everyone is acting and not everyone is a saint. And since uh, someone who kills someone or someone who does something bad or steals or things like that uh, will kind of shake up the thing, the whole, risk corrupting it because the principles of emesis, you have that in the Greeks, you have it in Aquinas, uh, you don't have, well, you can go to Spinoza to see it again, but Spinoza emphasized it especially. But the idea is you'll need laws to make sure that people will not do things that will get people to do worse things. Okay. So the multitude, even when it's trying to be together and trying to think, uh, what's the best for all of us here and now might be derailed and bring also tensions because of the unethical behaviors of the members there, even if and when they could be bringing in politically good ideas, okay? So the unity uh, will not be perfect. But the multitude will not be perfect either. Multitude can be corrupted or can be imperfect. Uh, it's the way Aquinas talks about it. Uh, and he goes on uh, uh, in the Secunda Secundae, question 70, article one at second, to how it can be destabilized and thus corrupted. But he eventually emphasized that whatever group, and he takes that partly from Aristotle, you'll have three basic groups. You'll have the ones he calls uh, uh, the perfect ones, the principles. And there's a multitude of them, but not that many, okay? Then there are what the, the ones what he, he, which he calls the vilis populus, okay? And there are not that many either, but he's interested in the middle group, very Aristotelian, you see, you create two foils and you say there's, you're looking for the middle and the middle, this is interesting, calls it populus honorabilis. People who will be acting so that there is some type of recognition, some type of honor at work. Uh, and it's emphasizing not just the fact that we're together, not that we have all different interests and capacities and things like that, things I've already mentioned, but there's a principle where we end up having things together in common. And he's looking at it from the 
blame and praise perspective, not fully the moral perspectives because the vilis and the honorabilis, you're at the border between what you praise or you uh, shame rhetorically in society and at the border of what becomes ethical. Uh, a few years ago in a seminar with one of the participants here, we discussed a lot about the idea of honor uh, in, the, in the idea there. But, but the idea is in all these three groups, you will have some that will be acting morally and others who will not be acting morally on top of the political differences. Thus, engaging a whole set and series of emotions that make thinking more difficult. So can we see to it that the corruption that can happen and thus make the multitude more and more imperfect uh, be avoided? There is a way and it has to do with laws. We won't be talking about law. There's gonna be a conference on law next year, uh, but I'm only interested in the fact that Aquinas makes it very clear, uh, especially in uh, Prima Secundi 96, Article 2, Ad Secundum, that it can only be gradually, slowly unified, okay? Laws are not there to make everything work universally in the same way, the way we think of law and the impact of the law, pace lawyers. Uh, law, laws will have on the long-term a gradual effect that will be unifying, maybe, if the laws are good and for the common good. If they're not, well, we just kind of uh, go wrong. So we started with this, there are people they're diversified, they're multitude. multitude. It's at, from different angles, you can see the diversity and the, and I've insisted on the possibility of it not totally be adjusted already. And whatever orientation there might be theologically and teleologically, if you want, the experience of it is not necessarily there. From there, I move to multitudes can be imperfect because of concupiscence and in that sense of moral imperfection. It complexifies the political and social thing. But not only that, so not only do you have the multitude that can be imperfect, multitudes as such can sin. Secunda secundae, question 108, article one at five. Uh, multitude can do bad things and multitudes can make people do bad things, okay? And well, you've got to tolerate some and you've got to do away with some others. That's still the place for the law, okay? Now, all this being said, you see, we have a complex thing. This multitude cannot be seen, at least in Aquinas, in terms of class. It's not just a crowd. It's not just masses uh, either. It's a very strange social thing, okay? Now let's try and see what happens to these things in, link, in line with the idea of uh, insurrection. And in order to go there because of uh, uh, the wording of Aquinas, 
let me bring in a word that he uses a few times, and that's partially with multitude and partially not. Turba. Okay. Turba uh, is the word Jerome used in his translation of the New Testament to talk about the crowds that were following Jesus. So when Aquinas uses turba, he doesn't use it necessarily in the sense that you have in classical Latin where the turba is, you know, the people, those that are walking in the mud, uh, they're down there and they're all muddy and they stink and things like that. And they're rowdy and you don't want anything to do with them. But he defines the turba in a way that is close to what we have with multitude, and that's why I bring it in, because it's composed both of wise people and of simple ones. Okay. And it's very interesting because we think that wise and simple are totally opposite, but if you think about it, it's much more complex than that, but that will not be for tonight. Okay. So why do I bring Turba? Is because after all I said about the multitudes, there, they cause, or there are, the occasions of perturbations or conturbationes. So you've got two Latin words, perturbare, perturbatio, and conturbatio, which are not exactly the same. Uh, what's a perturbation? Uh, you know, I'm trying to have my siesta and... Uh, I don't know, uh, Sarah phones me, the phone rings in my room. I kind of jump and I'm very perturbed. Uh, or two years ago, almost to this day, I learned that my dad was uh, dead, uh, died early in the morning. I was about to enter in a classroom. I was kind of perturbed, okay? Uh, agitated, embarrassed. Confused, okay. And there's, it's about disorders and things like that, okay. So you've got, and this is important because Hamilton's imaginary or fantasy is that whatever multitude you have, it will bring about stasis and uh, cause uh, perturbations. What Aquinas has is there are multitudes they are the condition of the emergence of the common good. They are the condition and the occasion of the uh, legal system, both in its making and its application and in the effect, okay? But perturbations can happen in a multitude or a multitude can cause some, okay? And How does that manifest itself? Well, disorderly movements, angry gatherings, which will have lots of clamor. Now, what's a clamor? Oh, it's noise, I know, I know. But it's more than noise. Vox clamavit, uh, there was a voice uh, screaming in the desert. Well, when you're clamoring, uh, you're, you're stating 
an anger. You're stating a reason for an anger. You're, you're pointing towards something that is hurting, okay? Of course, it's gonna be confused because in any multitude that is perturbed, not everyone is perturbed exactly in the same way. I don't know if you watched earlier uh, in the in the last few months, Black Lives Matters or Les Gilets Jaunes in France or Podemos or Occupy. Very interesting. You've got all sorts of slogans from different subgroups and they clash. They, there's oftentimes incompossible, but they all point to micro problems of justice and they're angry enough to get to the street and start talking. Okay. And of course, if you're a good stoic person, you're gonna say like Martha Nussbaum, anger is not a good political thing. Well, for Aquinas, anger can be. Anger needs to be able to get you to see the injustice and try to do something. But a multitude, as multitude, does not have the time, the capacity as such to sit and get all the legal niceties to make the justice, the injustice go away. But until it applies the proper pressure on the proper groups that can make that legal thing and that can pass the law, do you think anything's gonna happen? The answer is no. Human beings being what they are and look at the history of uh, politics, on the whole, people have need to be, have had a need to be pushed to think through the common good and the needs for changes in any situation. And it usually happens because you've got this troubled, disorderly, brouillon, we say in French, confused, uh, embarrassed, troubled groups of people who if you ask them to write a proper dissertation, they would not manage to do it. Okay, but they're suffering and they've got utopian hopes. And it's in and through that, that some people who can read and write sometimes uh, might even get to eventually write something that makes something of the hope real now here and something of the injustice disappear, okay? But however much Aquinas mentions these things, he does not want that to happen as seditio. Definitely not as tyranny, but definitely not as seditio. Why not as seditio? Because seditio, which is something uh, kind of bad, not as bad as war, but it's one group trying to harness the multitude so that the interest of that group topple the group that's already in power. So they're not working for the common good. They've got their agenda and they basically want to take power over the other. They might be better morally in all sorts of other ways, I don't mind. But what Aquinas is saying is that they're not thinking about the common good. So seditio as such is bad. But seditio as such is a vice against charity. But before we get to the vice, 
we've got to get back to the reality because not everyone is vicious. What it means there, it's something very that you find in the Constitution of Athens of Aristotle, which Aquinas had not read, is the idea that the clamor can be articulated. And you need people to articulate it. And they might not end up articulating it fully or completely or to the satisfaction of law or of the constitution. But you, they will articulate it in such a way that will organize the multitude, that would put it in movement. Rhetoric 101, it's basic. Uh, read again Aristotle, uh, the constitutions of Athens, what is Aristotle going to say? Well, you had so-and-so who started to talk about this problem and he got part of the multitude or part of the aristocracy all riled up and they changed uh, something. Of course, sometimes when the people who can change the laws don't want to change the laws, well, you've got to change the people there. Uh, so, but you see, Seditio beyond, or sorry, not beyond, before it gets to a vice, is signaling something that is important politically. Okay. Second one, uh, next point I want to bring in uh, is the idea of vindicatio. If sedition was a vice against charity and war, Vindicatio, which the brothers who translated the uh, Latin uh, Summa in English, they translated as vengeance. Father Dewan, it's a Dewan chair, didn't like the idea of vengeance. Uh, he tried different things, but I think if in English, in French, it's difficult. But in English, I think you have the word vindication. Do you have the word to vindicate? So what I'm interested in here again is that if you have a tyrant, the, the, the group, the multitude, the people, they can get together and say that there is something that is not being taken care of, that needs vindication. There is a requirement for justice. And they can insurrect uh, and, in a way, trump Roman 13. Okay. Aquinas has that in question 108, which one day we could have a whole session uh, just on that in the Secunda Secundae, because it's definitely not very modern. So our multitudes uh, can insurrect, can have uh, and end up having upheavals, okay? And they're like thunderstorms. They're quick, they're violent, they're noisy, but they transform the, the atmosphere, okay? And I don't use thunderstorm uh, lightly. If you go to the Latin perturbations, uh, will be linked to uh, uh, thunderstorm and things like that. Uh, Gaffio is a great, uh, and the medieval Kang du Cange dictionary are very useful things when you want to work on Aquinas beyond things. Now, I want to finish with a quote from Negri to begin my conclusion and then bring in something of Ranciere 
and then I'll be open for question and I will have spoken for about an hour. The multitude, however, although it remains multiple, it's on page 99 of Negri's book in my edition, is not fragmented, anarchical or incoherent. The concept of multitude should thus also be contrasted to a series of other concepts that designate plural collectives, such as the crowd, the masses and the mob. Since the different individuals or groups that make up the crowd are incoherent and recognize no common shared element, their collection or differences remain inert and can easily appear as an indifferent aggregate. The components of the masses, the mob and the crowd are not singularities. And this is obvious from the fact that their differences so easily collapse into the indifference of the whole. You see, Aquinas would not want this collapse to happen. Uh, he writes that because he thinks of Adorno who wrote on the masses and things like that. Moreover, the, these social subjects are fundamentally passive in the sense that they cannot act by themselves, but rather must be led. Think of the Communist Party that is there to uh, conscientize the, the proletarians, uh, conscientization, uh, we say in French, of the masses and things like that. And you've got mob leaders, populism. Multitude for him is something active, like the type of life that was happening in Aquinas's multitude. The multitude designates an active social subject, which, which acts on the basis of what the singularities share in common. And this is where I think that Negri is still too modern and not, uh, uh, well, he's not Thomas at all, but uh, not close to Aquinas. He still wants the masses to have community that is already given there, understood, and that's the right thing and the one thing, and it'll make the difference. Basically, the doctrine of uh, whichever revolutionary you want to have, uh, right, left, or center. I think Aquinas is closer uh, with Spinoza, which has more this idea of the multitude as something where it's spoiling and you do not have uh, a unified singularity there. The differences do not boil down to something unified. No, multitudes are, might be looking for the common good, but they're looking at it through a, a distinction and distribution of the sensible, to speak like Rancière, and through what Rancière calls the census. That is, they're looking through it with what they find, how it affects them, what they have a right to, and what they see others having a right to, and they don't have access to that. And they start thinking and moving, sometimes rightly, sometimes not so rightly, sometimes very altruistically and virtuously. Not everyone is virtuous. So sometimes just by sheer uh, self-interest, but it's that inner boiling that is very interesting, I find, okay? And at the heart of that, and I think this is where Aquinas is very interesting because it would have also theological implications which I will not bring in today, is that at the heart of Rancière, there's this idea that in any given space time, there's always a regime which decides who can be heard, who has a voice and who only has, uh, who has logos, 
capacity to speak, articulate, argue, reason, and who only has sounds, une voix, uh, like, uh, like animals that express basically emotions, okay? And you have in the 19th century in modernity also people who say when the masses clamor, it's like a bunch of animals saying, I hurt, but in and of themselves, they cannot do anything, okay? Aquinas does not agree with that. He thinks that in the multitudes, you have both sounds, emotions being clamored, voices in that sense, okay? And rationality and capacities to think. But it's never a given thing. There will always be someone who will want you to want to reduce you to a voice and not to a capacity to think. And some days you can be made to think or believe that you only have a voice. Now, those of you who know me and see this white thing uh, know that I'm a Dominican. We invented, and it's very interesting, well, we didn't invent, but we pushed it forward very importantly in our deliberative assemblies, the distinction between passive voices and active voices. The idea is that at one point you can say, yeah, 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 I want this, I agree with you. But then after a few more years in the order, you can say, uh, <clears throat> before I say yay or nay to this, uh, or before you in, uh, elect me to this or that, I think we should think like this and argue like that. And I can get others to say, yay, you're great. That's not what they usually say to me. Uh, but, uh, but you see, the idea is we have these, this capacity, which Francia cannot think. You either have reason or you have voice and you fight to get reason and not to be reduced to animality or even less. Uh, but I think in Aquinas' multitude, we have a, it's not really a concept. It's more of a regulating idea that we can use to criticize some of the modern uh, sociological ways of describing people, masses, crowds, and things like that with the type of politics that goes with it. Because insurrection is usually thought of in terms of lutte pour le pouvoir, we say in French, struggle for uh, not recognition, but for power. In the multitude of Aquinas, it's not about struggles for power or seditions. But he, the type of movement he wants are struggles because we're struggling to articulate and think through, accept as something that will be uniting us peacefully so that we can act more and more morally together until kingdom comes before, because before kingdom comes, there will not be perfect peace nor perfect concord, uh, but that's what multitudes are. And that's why we need to hope that there will always be upheavals, some insurrections, and why not a few revolutions once in a while. Otherwise there's no politics, Otherwise you'll have law and order, but you'll have law and order that will be unjust and definitely not piecing people and concording them. Uh, so I believe Aquinas' analysis of multitude can, could help us here. So 
that's all I want to put forward to you tonight. Uh, and I'm open for questions, commentaries, comments. Uh, you can all insurrect and uh, disappear and uh, do whatever. I'll decide who has a voice uh, and uh, who has something rational to say. But for me to be able to figure that out, I need first, if you have some noise you want to make that will decide if it's rational or not, uh, you know how it works. You've got to show this little hand to me and uh, I will invite you to speak. Walter, please, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, it's the going back all the way to the Greeks, the one, the many issue. Um, I feel that, uh, how can I put it? What comes with Christianity, what comes with, uh, you can, of course, coin this primarily we're speaking about, but the, the idea that uh, it's not really a question of one and many, it's a question of one and many ones, in the sense that uh, image of God comes into play. Uh, an image of God uh, is not uh, a tyrannical uh, participation. It's, it's, it's not uh, an absorption, okay? Mm -hmm. And, and it bestows upon each the quality of the one uh, mm -hmm. to such an extent that uh, the common good, Maritan, of course, the common good always has to flow back onto the person, each, each mm -hmm. and every person. When you do that, and of course it's a struggle given our sinfulness and our fallen situation, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, uh, of course it's a struggle, but when, when the struggle is in that direction, uh, the full integrity of one, is always respected uh, so that the tyranny of the group or a, a, a clique or, or whatever uh, will not gain hold. One is always fighting against that. And with uh, Michael Hart and Antonio Negri, I, I, I find that uh, their multitude collapses in the end into an imminence. Uh, transcendence isn't clear. Uh, whereas of course, with Aquinas, Maritain, uh, uh, the transcendent is very important. So that uh, the one, <laughs> uh, it becomes always a unique one, irreplaceable, uh, not part of any mass, uh, whether it be a multitude of singularities, uh, as they express it, I think it still retains an imminence. It never attains uh, the transcendence of each. Uh, that needs that absolute respect. Uh, and that respect would bring, of course, uh, a methodology too of, of how you treat uh, you, you know, the, the one that one disagrees with, the one that one argues with in, in, in conversation or, or, you know, hopefully prevents from getting to much further <laughs> conflict. Um, I don't know. I, I just wonder if any comments on that, the idea of uh, the, the, a multitude of ones as opposed to uh, uh, a multitude that collapses into an imminence or, or comes under the tyrannical in one way or another. The multitude of ones, I'll, I'll grant, because I'm a, I'm a good Christian, uh, doesn't always show, but I think I, I try to be at least. Uh, but the idea is Aquinas, when it comes to the politics, in a way that is definitely not Maritain, and we can work that out at Maritain Association next year, but uh, he's in a way more Aristotelian in the sense that there is a space for him for groupings in terms of not so much ones, but hmm. let's call that hurts, okay? Hmm. Or uh, desires and things like that, that will end up have, having a logic of its own 
within the multitude, okay, he's not, even when he talks theologically about ethics, his understanding of status and social positions, which is very medieval, uh, we have difficulty to grasp that. And I believe Maritain uh, forgot that because of his personalism. And when he speaks about subsidiarity, um, the different groups will be institutional, okay? And in that sense, uh, will never really give rise to the workings of the multitudes I've been trying to point uh, the way Aquinas is doing it. I think it's, it might be just because I haven't read all of Maritain, but I always thought that the making everyone a person, I don't disagree with that, but for Aquinas, when it comes to understanding the political dynamics, we need to have to bracket that partially, okay, to see the different groupings and the different logics there. And it's once that's set that you bring back, okay, each and every one of those are still ethical actors in that sense, you would say person, I'll say ethical actors that end up making uh, uh, choices right or wrongly for themselves or for the common good or for the good of their groups, okay? Uh, so there would be more mediation, I would think in Aquinas than there would be in that sense. Uh, but in that sense, Maritain, it's me and the state. Uh, it's very, very much, a dissolution or not taking so much into consideration what gave rise to the relationship between the state and the individual, okay? Uh, and if we had more time, I could show that Hobbes starts with this very social fabric that is all full of tensions and people wanting to show off and shut others up, et cetera, et cetera. And you get the idea that, okay, the the Leviathan and the contract will solve all of that. But no, that still is, because that's how you're gonna have science and that's how you're gonna have balls and things like that. And uh, uh, there's been a tend, or to put it differently, there's been a tendency in political philosophy and political science to forget the relationship of the social to uh, politics as it is still happening on the one hand. Uh, and in that sense, I would want to complexify the one into one. Uh, or if I keep it, I play a lot on the corruptive aspect of sin. Uh, but you see Aquinas is not, he brings in sinfulness in a second moment. The first moment is what we would call sociological. Okay. Uh, he looks at the acts happening and the ethical character of the actors come in afterwards. Hmm. It's a, it's methodologically, it's a very strange thing. We're not used to thinking like that and in, uh, in many modern uh, settings. Thank you. Another comment, question. Uh, Matthew, you wrote a novel to me. Do you want to speak up the, speak out the novel? Yeah, so uh, just to kind of get my thoughts clear, um, I've, 
in the past, uh, doing research for my master's thesis a long time ago, was reading the work of uh, Franz de Waal, the primatologist, and uh, his observations about uh, chimpanzees, bonobos, and humans, and the three very different ways we uh, socialize and create societies. And uh, one interesting thing that he noted was the overall lack of violence in bonobos and the extreme violence in chimpanzees. Humans are somewhere in between, like I said. And um, the question is, if we, you know, given time, could learn to sort of outgrow our tendency to disagree violently and um, control our species impulses, uh, perhaps the question of, um, of uh, disagreements and insurrections and and uh, that sort of thing will be kind of relegated to the past. It's just that we're still in experiencing the growing pains. Okay, so uh, uh, once COVID will let me do it, I will go and visit you with holy water and expel the spirit of Habermas out of you. Uh, or if I'm nice, I'll say, yes, you're right, but it will take so much time that the kingdom of God will arrive before. Uh, so you can keep on hoping if you want that. But I think that what we see both in theories nowadays, uh, you've got also in the last 30 years, there's been so much people talking about deliberative democracy and little groups and making sure everyone has a voice and is heard and blah, blah, blah. There lots of very nice things have happened and I'm all for it in a way. Uh, but at the same time, the types of disagreements and the subtlety of violence has also been very inventive. I can sound very, 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 very nice and very respectful and ironically kill you, uh, which I wouldn't do because I like you, you know. But the idea is that uh, I've been on so many boards in the last 12 years where all is regulated with all the norms of what you're proposing, okay? Uh, well, ain't happening in my, in at least the places I go. And the, 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 the problem I think is Aquinas has put his finger on it. We can live because we want consensus. We, we've got difficulty living with disagreements. But for Aquinas, small disagreements about opinions when it comes to do something should, should not make it impossible for us to work together, okay? The difficulty is because we're not at peace with, with ourselves. The tensions I have with Matthew Hazel, one of my uh, uh, students in his PhD, he just sent me 59 pages today. You know, I, I don't like him a lot today. Uh, uh, you know, when I'll come to speak with him about those 59 pages, uh, the pain I had reading it will be difficult because I'm not a saint yet to leave out of our conversation, okay? Uh, so the idea is even if we have all the rational structures and we have all of the training required, as long as I come and I'm not at one with myself, I'm not at peace with myself, fully, which is not for tomorrow morning uh, either, 
I will make much too much of some disagreements than ought to be the case. So in that sense, uh, I disagree with the optimizing optimism of uh, Habermas, but next year there's, uh, I'm planning a conference on Aquinas and these little disagreements. Uh, so we can chat a bit more about that then. Thanks for your comment. Uh, do I see a hand up? Uh, uh, Michel? You were mentioning Hobbes earlier and I get a sense that with moderns, we worry about the problem of order as we can imagine things going to a complete atomization of society. But that for, for a medieval thinker, there was a floor, there was a certain level of disorder beyond which it could not go because we live in a created universe. How do you think that changes the way people think about the problem? Um, we'd have to look at modernity uh, uh, in different stages because in the 17th century, that floor is still there and Hobbes and company are already writing, okay? By the time you get to the moments, I would say of the enlightenment of the 18th century, some of that could be the case, but not everywhere because by the time you get there, there this floor would have been managed if you want by nature that is bring or history or reason. Think of Hegel or Kant's history of idea. So there's still something of that floor beyond which there is not that. Uh, I'm not sure that the medieval ages, in fact, uh, some of the thinkers, you're right, had that floor and linked it to providence, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes the reading we do of Aquinas is to buttress that. But when you think about it, uh, there's a book on population I'm reading in the medieval ages for another uh, thing I'm working linked to multiplicities and multitudes. And in Western Europe, what we would call Western Europe today, there were in the 13th century more than two, three thousand or two thousand five some hundred and something upheavals or revolts of peasants or in the cities. The idea of a stable medieval where you know where the flooring is, I think is a projection from the past, from the uh, in the projection onto the 12th, 13th century uh, of Renaissance or something like that. Because when you think about it, the conflicts, just to, uh, the conflicts between the king, the city and the university in Paris, we're talking 60 years of struggles and laws and movements and profs leaving the city with their students and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, bakers not baking uh, and things like that. And when you read the sermons, and you leave the theologians and the Neoplatonism there, uh, the sermons are not so clear that there is that bottom, uh, that floor that cannot be gone beyond. Uh, the idea of, there's a fear of chaos. There's a fear, uh, there's lots of different fears of all this could crumble, okay? So, but this is, we'd have to work more on on that, uh, if you want, I can give you references later on uh, on this point. One more question, comment. 
Professor Mador, uh, the Kantian is in you must have cringed a few times. Well, well, on insurrection, right? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I really enjoyed the last question. I think it's spot on. I, 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 the, the telos of the political order is to tackle the problem of chaos fundamentally. And Plato had a solution. Tyranny in Greece had a solution and tyranny was a legitimate form of government. Pisistratus was an applauded ruler. Uh, but of course, I think that the rapport uh, to chaos changes in, in, in modernity because we're severed from the reference to God and, and more than the reference to God from this idea that there is such a thing as an order in nature. Um, and so we move, if I may speak of Gaucher here, from the regime of heteronomy to the regime of autonomy. And so I think that I wonder to what extent, I'm not sure what my question is here, but um, I did have one, but I suddenly forgot it. I, I, just to get back to your comment on, on violence at one point, I also smiled at the question and your little quip about Habermas, but, uh, and you said violence can be inventive. Actually, violence is constitutive, right, in modernity. We build on violence to, to erect the modern state, which has the monopoly of violence. This is, you mentioned Hobbes, you mentioned Rancière. These are all authors who seek to use violence in order to, to, to constitute the political order. So I'm but kind you of- had that, You see, Israel, you had that with the Greeks. When you, read the, the, when you read the constitution of right. Athens, of Aristotle, these changes of regimes were very violent and it was normal, yes. but we've come to, not want that because of we've gotten to democracy and we have the best no, way of doing it without violence. I don't think so. Not because of democracy, because Anna Arendt's thoughts on democracy specifically state that, that um, we cannot, there, there's no such thing as an overcoming of violence in, in a very loose Greek sense. I understand I'm not talking about uh, a rebellion necessarily or, or brute brutality here, but uh, I think you mentioned, um, stasis earlier on in your uh, in your presentation so and i think Anna Arendt would say that the institution of democracy is the institutionalization of violence right this, this, this is why it's a tragic regime it's accepting that there's no such thing as truth and what we're left with are more or less enlightened opinions you know that get a bigger vote i mean there's no uh, this is what multiplicity is uh, i would agree with you that but i'm not sure it's tragic because i'm not much of a drama queen you know uh, but uh, I, I get the idea, but yeah. uh, well, I would uh, in a Greek sense, neither yeah, in the Greek I... sense, yes. Uh, very, and we must remember that some of the Greek tragedies ended up in laughter, they were not all uh, like uh, ending, uh, everyone was blind, killed, or dying. Uh, yeah. so, uh, in that Greek sense, yes, but there was a moment in modernity where we thought that democracy was it and would do away with all. And that's what you have with uh, Hamilton. Hamilton wants, we've got a firm constitution. We will have put an end to violence and factions and seditions and things like that. And we can move on afterwards. Uh, yeah. I think that we've recovered from and we still need to recover from to really get to the understanding that uh, nothing is gained Political regimes are all frail, fragile, vulnerable, and uh, there's a need to work together. And uh, 
the way we work together is not slogans and uh, campaign platforms and promises necessarily uh, once every five years. Uh, but if there is to be what people call democracy, uh, it will have to be something where citizens will be much more active than yeah. uh, where we are in our representative uh, types of liberal governments today. Uh, but that takes us away from uh, insurrection mm -hmm. as such. It's how we could do without them. But I, I, I and this is why I started that uh, three-year seminar and I presented tonight on insurrection and Aquinas. I think upheavals and insurrections are part and parcel of what humanity is and does so as to eventually invent politics. The day there won't be that, there will not, there will be what Hansier would call police. Uh, and you will not have politics anymore. Yeah, well, for Hansier, there's always police. There's never, there's almost yes. never any politics, but um, yeah, you're right. But there is, there are for Hansier, there are some uh, inter, inter, uh, interruptions or intermissions. Uh, for those of you who do not know uh, Joel, uh, he's a philosopher, political philosopher, and we're working with a poor student uh, on a thesis uh, on Rancière and these type of things. So uh, uh, we, we have an, and I suggest all of you to read Rancière. It's a good read. So if there's not any other questions, uh, we can discuss more uh, in other forums. So enjoy the, the evening and uh, thanks for being there. Thanks for the foundation to help us uh, make these things possible and uh, see you soon, all of you. Bye, thank you.